Hey y'all, it's Bree, and in today's episode, I am so excited to introduce you all to Kristen Lyons. She's a speech-language pathologist and director of rehabilitation services at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, and she has over eight years devoted exclusively to pediatric oncology and hematology. Her research interests include rehabilitation for patients with posterior fossa syndrome and the comprehensive management of feeding and swallowing disorders in childhood cancer patients and survivors. You can also find Kristen on Instagram, ped.onc.slp. She strives to make evidence-based information about childhood cancer easily accessible to SLPs and applicable to clinical practice. Kristen was so excited to come on the podcast today because her passion and desire to teach others and provide mentorship and support to anyone interested in this specific niche as an SLP is undeniable. In today's episode, we're going to go through different types of childhood cancers that may be seen by an SLP for feeding and swallowing, causes of feeding and swallowing problems in children with cancer, for example, tumor burden or location, surgery, chemotherapy, We're going to discuss different tumor types and locations, the side effects of surgery and radiation, chemotherapy, bone marrow transplant, and other general cancer-related side effects. We're going to wrap it up with management of feeding and swallowing problems in children with cancer, including evaluation, treatment, and referrals and interdisciplinary collaboration. Again, I am so excited to have Kristen Lyons on today's episode, and I hope you enjoy what we have to share. Welcome to The Feeding Pod. I'm Bree, your co-host. I am a speech-language pathologist and certified lactation counselor. I work with infants and medically complex patients with PFDs in the home and outpatient settings. I enjoy building relationships with families, and I'm a firm believer in providing interdisciplinary care. I also love providing mentorship and support to upcoming and new clinicians on pediatric feeding disorders. You can find more about me on my Instagram at pediatric feeding SLP or on my website, pediatricslplibrary.com. And I'm Olivia, co-host, registered dietitian, nutritionist, and certified lactation counselor. I work in a pediatric clinic where I get to divide my time between working as a CLC and an RDN for infants and children. I enjoy being able to help caregivers navigate through these difficult times that include the newborn phases all the way through the teenage years. I feel that my personal experience from having a newborn who's now a toddler and a child with special needs, including a feeding disorder, really come into play. We are here to bring you multidisciplinary, evidence-based information that is easily accessible about pediatric feeding and swallowing disorders. We understand firsthand the importance of collaboration and how difficult it can be to navigate the ever-changing information on assessment and treatment of pediatric feeding disorders. The Feeding Pod is here to provide research, support, and a dash of comic relief. Now, let's dive right in. Disclaimer, all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. This is intended to be educational in nature and does not replace the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment from a qualified healthcare provider.
Welcome back to The Feeding Pod. I am so, so excited today because I have Kristen Lyons with us and she is going to talk all things SLP um, related to feeding and swallowing, working in an oncology unit. So Kristen, I'm going to pass it over to you. Just go ahead and give a brief introduction and then um, we'll dive right in. Yeah, I'm really excited to be here. I'm Kristen um, and I have the pleasure of working at a children's hospital in Memphis, Tennessee, where we treat um, infants and children and young adults with cancer and blood disorders and other catastrophic diseases. Um, part of my time is spent in a leadership role for the rehab department. And then part of my time is spent working with patients in both the inpatient and outpatient settings while they're on active treatment for cancer or some other disease. Awesome. Um, it's, it's a great place to work. I love it so much. Um, and it's, it's an exciting, um, role to have. Yeah. I, I love that. It's such a, a niche part of our field. And so I know like, I'm really excited to learn more about this and what our role is, as well as some of the, you know, different diagnoses and things that you see that come with it and how you sort of establish care. Cause I think care can be a little bit different in this population when you're moving forward with a treatment plan. So, um, I'm really excited about that. Also for anyone who wants to learn more, uh, Kristen is on Instagram. It's at P dot ONC for oncology dot SLP. Um, and it's got so much information, check out the show notes as well for reference for today's episode. But, um, Kristen, let's just, you know, go ahead and dive in. So first, you know, let's kind of talk about what are some more common types of childhood cancer that would be seen by an SLP for feeding and swallowing? Yeah, so the SLP is involved in the care of patients with many different childhood cancer diagnoses and for a lot of different reasons. Um, I think we'll probably focus a little bit on some of the treatment modalities for those diagnoses and then the feeding and swelling issues that occur in this patient population, but it is important to know, you know, what are the diagnoses that you're going to see? I wanted to highlight a couple of those today. So um, leukemia is a big one. Um, leukemia is the most common type of pediatric cancer. It accounts for about a third of all new childhood cancer cases. Um, and it's a blood disorder. So the bone marrow is unable to produce healthy blood forming cells. So those red blood cells, white blood cells, platelets, um, children with leukemia often have trouble fighting infections. They can develop anemia. Um, and then actually leukemia treatment can take, you know, two to three years to complete. So it's a long time that they can be on the caseload for active treatment. Um, but one of the best parts about leukemia is that the survival rate increased greatly over the past, you know, 20, 30, 40 years. Um, and so a lot more patients are um, achieving what we consider cure um, because it's unlikely for their cancer to return after so long. Um, and so the strides that we've made in the survival rate for leukemia is just really incredible. Um, and those are patients that I definitely see um, and I think the other group of diagnoses that probably make them make up the most of my caseload are um, head and neck tumors. So um, the most common malignant brain tumor in children is called medulloblastoma um, that grows in the cerebellum. Um, and then there's tumors like rhabdomyosarcoma. That's a soft tissue cancer that grows in muscle. Um, rhabdo can be found in many parts of the body, but for an SLP, um, they're likely to be involved when it's found near like the jaw or the neck, for example. Okay, so the other group of cancers that probably make up the most um, of my caseload are head and neck tumors. Um, the most common type of mal malignant brain tumor in children is called medulloblastoma, and that grows in the cerebellum. 
Um, and then there's other tumors like rhabdomyosarcoma. That's a soft tissue cancer that grows in muscle. And rhabdo can be found in many parts of the body, um, but the SLP is likely to be involved when rhabdo is found near the jaw or the neck, for example. So I thought it'd be nice to talk about, you know, why or how do feeding and swelling issues arise in these patients? Um, and sometimes it's caused by the cancer itself. Other times it's caused by the way we treat the cancer. Um, and other times it's caused by the side effects of those treatments. So there's a lot of reasons why SLPs are involved in this population. I'm excited to go forward with this because I think we hear a lot about, especially head and neck cancer with the adult population, but we really don't talk about it as much with pediatrics. So I'm really excited for, for us to dive into that because like you said, it is not necessarily where the like, yes, the tumor location, but a lot of times the treatments can also influence it. Yep, absolutely. And we've learned a lot from our adult head and neck cancer colleagues. And a lot of time that informs the pediatric practice because they're not doing um, the same types of research because it's on kids and that's a vulnerable population. Yeah. And so sometimes we don't have, um, you know, this bulky research base to go off of. So we do use a lot of what we know in adult head and neck cancer um, and so I love those colleagues because they're doing amazing work as well. Absolutely. Um, it's just, it's, you know, there's some things that are very similar um, between the two populations. And then there's some things that are really different as well. And I think that's like, you know, that really shows why the, the evidence-based practice is a triangle because a lot of times the research, especially for pediatrics is adult heavy. And so we mm -hmm. have to use our clinical expertise and the family value side to then say, okay, here's what research tells us but what do we know about children? What do we know about this particular family? What do we know about? And so being able to use all three parts of that triangle. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, you definitely wanna use evidence. You wanna use best clinical practice, um, but you also have to learn how to apply. Yes. Um, so yeah. The hardest part. That. <laughs> hardest, right? The hardest part. Always. Um, okay, so let's talk about some of the different reasons why um, feeding and swallowing is a concern or something that an SLP might target in this population. So the, the easy one, and you kind of mentioned this already, is tumor burden or tumor location. Um, so burden really refers to the amount of um, tumor cells in the body or like the mass in the body if it's a brain tumor. So say, we, say we're talking about a brain tumor in the brain stem, um, that the burden of that tumor on such an important part of the body can cause very serious issues. So we know the brain stem is responsible for breathing and heart rate and swallowing and 10 out of the 12 cranial nerve nuclei are located here. Um, so you can have some major issues just based on a tumor um, invading a specific part of the body. Um, the same thing goes for cerebellar tumors. So we'll um, have a lot of tumors that invade the cerebellum. And that, of course, can cause issues with, you know, coordination and precision, precision and timing of movements. And of course, that uh, um, leads into swallowing issues because those are very specific movements required. Um, and so just, you know, just the presence of the tumor, the location of the tumor can cause the issue. Um, another thing I like for people to be aware of in pediatric cancer is hydrocephalus. Um, and so hydrocephalus is that abnormal buildup of fluid in the ventricles in the brain, um, and it puts pressure on the brain. And this can be especially troublesome for babies. So a lot of times infants with hydrocephalus have that larger head circumference, um, the weight of the head can impact their ability to hold their head up or sit independently. And obviously those things impact their ability um, to eat. 
Yeah, that definitely makes sense um, with just in terms of where it's located. And I'm curious, just on your experience, do you find that um, oftentimes those types of symptoms are one of the reasons um, it's sought out to get, receive a diagnosis? Like there's some loss of skill or some changes that tend to occur first? Absolutely. So a lot of times, so there's kind of the two situations. There's either loss of skill, like we were crawling or walking and now we're not. Um, we had, you know, pretty good balance for our age and now our balance is really off. Um, we are six years old and now we're drooling and that seems inappropriate for that age. So there's usually some kind of like outside indicator that clues the parent and to say like, we need to go figure out what's going on. And that might lead to eventually down the road, um, some scans. A lot of times, um, initially it'll be treated as something else, a sinus infection, a GI issue, um, anxiety, migraine, those types of things. And so sometimes it can take a little bit to get to that diagnosis. Um, but a lot of times caregivers are saying there's something here, um, that just doesn't sit right. And we need to go get this figured out. And then a lot of times, the other way we get these diagnoses is the kid, you know, gets hit by a baseball. And so they take him in for a scan or he falls off the ATV or whatever the case may be. And it's like this incidental finding that we probably wouldn't have known because they didn't really have any other symptoms um, mm -hmm. at that time. Um, so it kind of can go either way. It's really interesting. Some of the stories that families tell me when they're like, this is how we found out. Mm -hmm. um, I um, actually went to school, elementary school with a girl who um, at recess, we were playing kickball and she got hit in the head and they got a scan and they found the brain tumor um, yep. just because of that. It was just right. Just because they were checking for a concussion. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. And then we find this, you know, this mass in the brain. So yeah, Crazy. definitely different reasons. Yes. Um, but a lot of times, especially with, you know, our brain tumor patients, they'll show some type of a symptom um, that'll clue people in to say, we need to check this out a little bit more. Um, and some of the other um, diagnoses that we might work with, like rhabdomyosarcoma, you might actually start to see the tumor mass invading the cheek or the jaw or displacing something. And you're going, what is this lump, this bump? Um, so sometimes it's actually seeing it before it causes symptoms in some of those like muscular um, types of cancer. So, yeah. So what are some other causes um, for reasons that you may see feeding and swallowing problems with these children? Yeah. Um, so surgery is a big one. Surgery is often one of the first treatments that we use for brain tumors, especially. Um, and sometimes surgery, um, can cause some complications. Um, so there might be cranial nerve injury and that causes vocal cord paralysis or palatal dysfunction or facial weakness. Um, surgery might require structural changes. So if it's a tumor of the head and neck region and we need to resect part of the mandible or remove the teeth or remove part of the tongue, this can impact feeding and swallowing. Um, and so surgery, surgeons are fantastic and I love them dearly and they do a wonderful job. Um, but sometimes things just happen and there's, there's post-op complications that occur that you know make it very easy for a speech pathologist to step in um, for some of those feeding and swallowing issues. So radiation is also a treatment modality that a lot of childhood cancer patients receive. Um, it's used to kill cancer cells in the body. Um, and just a little background about radiation. So um, this just means that we're using beams 
um, of radiation to shrink tumors, kill cancer cells, um, and it does this by damaging the DNA inside the cancer cells. Um, it can be used alone, so some patients might never have a surgery and only receive radiation. Um, it can be used in combination with other treatments, so someone might have sur surgery and radiation only, they might have surgery, radiation, and chemotherapy, they might only have radiation and chemotherapy, so there's a lot of different um, regimens that very much depends on things like the age of the patient, the type of the tumor, the location, um, the spread throughout the body, the, um, those, those kinds of factors. And the, the oncology team really helps to decide, you know, what's the best path forward. Um, radiation is really precise. It requires precise dosing and precise delivery. Um, and so the child has to stay very still um, if they're unable to do that for whatever reason, whether that's, you know, age or ability, um, it requires sedation. And the typical treatment schedule is five days a week. So sometimes our kids are being sedated five days a week, which is a lot. Um, and that can be hard to, you know, perform before sedation when you're in PO and then wake up from sedation and go to PT and speech and all of those things. And that can be really, really tough. Um, I think that's one too that, um, just from like personal experience with friends or family members that have had cancer where um, the side effects last even after radiation treatment is over um, and there'll still be some of those difficulties. And so I could see where, especially depending on where it's being treated, because it is so precise, having some of those side effects even after treatment's finished. Absolutely. Yeah. And there's quite a few side effects for radiation. Um, patients won't have all of them. They might have a combination. Some are worse for others. Um, so someone might have really, really significant mucositis and that's their main issue. And it's just ongoing and awful and others might not really have mucositis at all. Um, and so you know, when I'm talking about mucositis, I mean the like ulcerations in the lining of the GI tract. So a lot of times this will present as mouth sores. Um, you can have swollen mouth or gums. There's usually some mouth and throat pain. Um, they might feel like they have a burning sensation. Um, it can make their saliva really thick. It can make swallowing really, really hard. Um, and so often these patients require you know, some type of medical treatment like painkillers and um, inflammatory medicines, anti-inflammatory medicines, mouthwashes, saliva substitutes, things like that. Um, and it can be really difficult as an SLP to know, you know, when is the right time for me to get involved with this patient? I know they're having trouble swallowing. Would they benefit just from some recommendations about you know, consuming foods that are softer and maybe a little bit colder and not so spicy and not so acidic. And is that enough for them? Um, because generally we're, it's, it's not dysphagia that we're talking about. There's not, you know, um, a physiological issue, um, but they are having trouble consuming a regular diet for their age. Um, and so it can be pretty difficult to figure out, okay, Am I providing recommendations? Am I providing treatment? Um, and we have lots of conversations about this, you know, when, when to step in and when to provide just those recommendations for the families, what's going to be best for each patient. And it really comes down to case by case. Um, there's no true right or wrong answer. Um, some patients are ready for it at different stages than others. Um, but mucositis can be really tough. Um, 
think about a two-year-old with mouth sores. They're just not going to want to eat and it's, you're not going to be able to convince them to eat either. Yeah, definitely. What are some of the other possible side effects that you might see? Yeah, so um, xerostomia, so dry mouth, um, when the salivary glands can't make enough saliva, a lot of that can be um, a direct result of radiation to the head and neck area. Um, that definitely impacts swallowing, um, their ability to taste, um, even oral health can decrease when there's not enough saliva. Um, you know, they feel like they have a really dry mouth and their saliva is thick and stringy, and they might even have like cracked or chapped lips. Um, it can cause trouble with chewing and bolus formation. Um, and again, there's the medicines that can help out. Um, but sometimes it's just like getting through radiation. Um, and doing the best we can um, during that really tough time. Another um, similar side effect is thrush. That's actually a fungal infection. So it's an overgrowth of yeast in the mouth. Um, a lot of times this will cause lesions on the tongue and the inside of the cheeks. Um, it usually looks like these white patches. Some, sometimes it kind of looks like um, cottage cheese almost. And again, it just feels gross. So people, um, children don't want to put more things in their mouth when they already have, you know, this white patchy stuff in their mouth. Um, a lot of times we're using antifungal medications um, or like a gel or a rinse to kind of treat that. Um, but it's just not fun to swallow when there's this coating inside your mouth. Yeah. And correct me if I'm wrong, thrush can go back like toward the throat as well too. So it's not Absolutely. necessarily just on top of the tongue, but you can have it um, more down like toward their esophagus and stuff where yeah. it's also uncomfortable. Same thing with mucositis. Like you can find kids who the, the, the entire GI tract oh. has sores along. It's just not a comfortable experience. Mm -hmm. And, you know, with everything, there's variations in severity. So mild cases happen all the time. Super severe cases happen all the time and everything in between. Okay. So what are some of the other side effects, um, that we may see with surgery? Yeah. So with surgery, um, one of the things that we have to consider are structural changes that might be needed due to the location of the tumor. So say there's a tumor in the head and neck region, um, maybe we have to respect part of the mandible or we have to remove some of the teeth or part of the cheek or the tongue. And so those structural changes are obviously going to impact um, the child's ability to consume their diet. Um, and we might have to work with them as well. There are also some side effects of surgery, especially for brain tumor patients um, that cause more um, long-term changes. So there's a syndrome called posterior fossa syndrome. Um, you might also hear it referred to as cerebellar mutism um, or cerebellar mutism syndrome. And this is the idea of, it's really, really interesting. And one of the things that I'm really passionate about um, in pediatric cancer because we're still learning so much about it and why it's happening. Um, the easiest way to think about it is there's an injury that occurs during the tumor resection. And at some point after the surgery, usually um, one to around 11 days postoperatively, you'll see some changes in the patient that you can't really pin on anything identifiable. So there's no changes in vitals. There's no changes in the scans, things like that. Um, but the patient will um, maybe go mute or have very decreased speech. Um, they'll have ataxia, dysphagia, um, emotional ability. So having trouble um, 
with either mood swings or modulating um, their emotions. And it's just really, really interesting syndrome that is really important for rehab therapists to um, be a part of because this is something that they're going to probably be working through for a while. It's not something that just spontaneously recovers. Um, there's no drug that treats it. There are um, medicines that treat some of the side effects. So, you know, we might use um, an anxiety medicine to calm down some of those like wild mood swings, or we might use some medicines that um, help them with their um, body movements. Um, but a lot of times the treatment is getting into physical therapy, occupational therapy, and speech therapy. Um, and these patients can have these deficits persisting for months and years after surgery. So a lot of times the speech pathologist is getting involved initially because of mutism. I think that's kind of like that hallmark characteristic. And that's the thing that really sticks out first. But one of the things that's really important is these patients, because they have um, these motor impairments, there's generally um, whole body apraxia. So we've got oral apraxia as well. And there's a lot of dysphagia going on as well. Um, Posterior fossa syndrome generally um, occurs in patients with medulloblastoma, which occurs in the cerebellum. So if you think back to what the cerebellum does, it's movement, right? Um, and you're thinking about all the different movements that it's responsible for, it makes sense that these patients would have trouble both with speaking and with swallowing. Um, I could talk about posterior fossa like all day. day. Like that's my that's what my research is. That's what that's that's the, I, if I could see those patients all day long, that's what I would do. So interesting. I love them. It's so. really, really interesting. Do you find that the mutism kind of comes out to not necessarily be mutism, but just more so the um, impact on the motor movements? Yeah, so that's a really good question. So we call it mutism. A lot of times it's the inability to coordinate the things that are required for speech. So we're having trouble coordinating breast support. We're having trouble coordinating our mouth movements to make the sounds that we need to make. We're having trouble turning our voice on when we want to turn our voice on. So a lot of times these patients can do things reflexively really easily. So I might say, open your mouth and they can't do it on command, but they yawn without a problem. Or we might hear them cry um, or laugh and we know they can turn their voice on, but if you ask them to say ah uh, or mom or whatever you're trying to get them to say, they just have a really hard time coordinating all of those things at the same time. It's truly like apraxia, motor speech, love that yeah. kind of stuff. Um, but then it goes into the swallowing as well. You know, they have trouble coordinating the movements for swallowing. Across the board. Yeah, that's so interesting. Um, another condition is fibrosis. Um, there are some types of fibrosis that I see a lot more in childhood cancer patients. Um, their lymphedema, for example, is, um, I would say, anecdotally seen more often in the adult population. I don't have numbers to back that up, but that's based purely on my clinical experience and my conversations with adult um, therapists. And so I'd encourage people who are interested in lymphedema to take a deeper dive into the literature. Um, if that's an area of interest, I would say the type of fibrosis that I see most often is trismus or um, that limited jaw opening. 
So this um, is a side effect of radiation that causes tonic contraction of the muscles of mastication. Um, it can get worse over time. It can remain the same over time. Um, and this is one where we definitely want to get involved and try to um, see if we can get that jaw moving a bit more. Um, I read a study once that said um, about 25% of patients whose treatment exposes the muscles of the jaw to radiation will develop trismus that's severe enough to impact normal function. So one in four is having some type of difficulty that is either making it hard to do oral care or they can't participate in dental care very easily or they're having trouble consuming PO as they would typically. Um, and trismus can get so bad that it might require um, beyond therapy, it could even require surgery. So there's times where patients have to go in and have their jaws like manually opened. Um, and then it's our job to get in there and teach them the strategies to maintain that opening. Um, so that's a big one wow. too. Um, one of, uh, there's a really interesting side effect of radiation called radiation necrosis. Um, and this is a neurotoxic side effect of radiation that really just results in these progressive neurological symptoms. Um, essentially what happens is the tissue at the tumor site becomes injured and dies from radiation exposure. And so symptoms might look like ataxia and headache and nausea and seizures and even dysarthria and dysphagia or reduced oral motor skills. And at first it can be really hard in a um, brain tumor patient to tell the difference between radiation necrosis and tumor progression because a lot of those symptoms are the same. Um, and then it can look pretty similar on imaging at first. Um, but once we figure out that, oh no, that's actual tissue death, um, typically the medical team will come in with steroids um, to control symptoms. Sometimes patients will require surgery to remove the dead tissue. Um, some patients benefit from hyperbaric oxygen treatment, um, which allows them to get like pure oxygen to um, repair the areas of the brain that have been damaged. Um, and so I've had patients before, you know, they're walking, talking, eating just fine. And then over the course of a week or two, it's severe ataxia and dysarthria and drooling and difficulty eating. Um, and I don't know what people know about steroids and kids, but they are the hangriest little things on steroids. And so I had this one patient who was just so upset about her change in speech and she was hungry all of the time. And so for a while, when we were trying to work on um, her feeding skills and her dysarthria, she truly just yelled broccoli at me for like 30 minutes straight because she just wanted to eat broccoli. Um, so they're hangry little buggers on uh, steroids, but that is one of the, the first line treatments for radiation necrosis. And I did get her some broccoli. So <laughs> we, we worked our way up to eating broccoli. <laughs> That's funny. And then you had mentioned earlier, you know, some of these side effects can go on long after cancer treatment is finished. And so um, one of the terms that we use in um, cancer literature are lead effects. So things that don't necessarily happen at the time of treatment, but that might show up after treatment. And one of the lead effects of radiation is esophageal stricture. Um, and this can happen, you know, months to years after completion of radiation. Um, and it's just when the, esoph the esophagus isn't enough for food to pass through comfortably. 
Um, so a lot of times you'll get reports of a globus sensation or they might have pain when they're swallowing. Um, in some cases, you'll have some episodes of choking. And um, in my experience, it's a little bit more common in older children and young adults, but sometimes I wonder if it's that young children can't communicate what's happening or what it feels like as well as some of our older patients. Um, so these patients often get referred for a swallow study um, of some kind and then we'll refer out, you know, occasionally they'll need esophageal dilation. Um, usually that has to be because it's not really a one and done procedure, um, but that can be something that patients are dealing with, you know, after radiation is complete and everything else um, has kind of healed. So I think, is that all, that's majority of that's the side right. effects for radiation? Okay. Okay. That's radiation. All right. So next one kind of going into other other reasons that there may be feeding and swallowing difficulties um, would be chemotherapy. So tell me about that. Yeah, so chemotherapy, um, the easiest definition or the way to think about it is, you know, a medicine that's used to kill cancer cells or to stop the cells from growing. Um, chemotherapy can be used to cure cancer. It might just control cancer. It might be used to alleviate symptoms of cancer. So there's lots of reasons why a patient might receive chemotherapy. Um, much like radiation, it can be used by itself. It might be used in combination with other treatments. Um, and similar to radiation, the, the when, the why, the how much of chemotherapy depends on a lot of factors, like the goals of the treatment, the type of the cancer, the stage of the cancer. Um, generally, cancer is given intravenously, um, so meaning through the vein, or it can also be given orally, um, so a pill or a liquid that you swallow. Um, we will sometimes have to work with patients on pill swallowing so that they can participate in specific types of chemotherapy. So that's one thing to kind of think about um, with chemotherapy. But um, let's talk about those side effects. So we've talked about thrush and mucositis. Those can occur with radiation or chemotherapy. So just keep those two in mind. Um, Dysgeusia, so altered taste perception or you know, a distortion of taste is a big one for chemotherapy. And every patient, it seems like, um, is a little bit different. So sometimes things taste too strong or sometimes things taste too bland or they have a metallic taste or they prefer savory or salty foods or they prefer sweet foods. Um, and again, I wonder if some of this is because children might have difficulty communicating what it actually tastes like to them, um, not having the words to describe the things that are, um, that the things that taste good versus the things that taste bad, uh, but it can definitely impact quality of life and PO intake when things just don't taste like they did before. Mm -hmm, definitely. Um, another big side effect of chemotherapy that you hear across the board is nausea and vomiting. This is super, super um, common symptom. Um, Anti-nausea medicines can be helpful, um, but nausea and vomiting can actually change the intensity of treatment. Um, it can increase the length of the hospital stay, and it can definitely reduce PO intake. Um, a lot of times in young children, nausea and vomiting is associated with eating and drinking rather than with chemotherapy because they think, I eat this thing, I throw up. And so those get associated as opposed to, you no, know, this medicine is making me feel this way and making me throw up. Um, so then they don't drink. 
can be really tough because, you know, that association makes sense to them, but it's actually probably a result of the chemotherapy. Um, makes sense though, because what they are vomiting is probably their food. And so it's really that association of like, no, no, it's the treatment you got earlier or the day before, not yep. what's going on right now. Or even if they do understand that it's the chemo making them sick, they don't want to eat because they know they're going to throw up anyway. Yeah. So why am I eating? I don't want to eat when I'm nauseous. (laughs) Exactly. It doesn't feel good. So I just don't want to do it at all. Yeah. Um, A lot of times I'll group some of these symptoms together and I created kind of my own little term. Um, I usually call it treatment induced feeding difficulty. Um, And that's just what I um, like to call kind of this phenomenon of like problems with acceptance and management of these age appropriate foods and liquids. And it's directly related to the side effects of cancer treatment. Um, so some of those that we've talked about taste alterations, um, nausea and vomiting, I kind of group those into this term, um, because it really, really can be tough to get these kids to eat and drink while they're on treatment. Um, and then if you combine that with, you know, throw in a little mucositis or um, a little acid reflux, and we've got, you know, major problems with their um, motivation to eat by mouth. Um, one, of, uh, one of the most interesting side effects of chemotherapy to me is this idea of chemotherapy induced vocal cord dysfunction. So there's a chemotherapy called vincristine, um, and that's a drug that's used to treat a variety of cancers, um, acute lymphoblastic leukemia, neuroblastoma, retinoblastoma, that's an eye cancer. Um, It's actually used in a lot of treatment regimens for pediatric cancer, and it can cause peripheral neuropathy, which is like numbness or tingling or neuropathic pain. Um, And then the side effect that kind of gets forgotten a little bit is that it can actually cause vocal cord paralysis or paresis. Um, And of course, with vocal cord dysfunction, you know, we're looking at things like dysphagia and stridor and hoarseness and even respiratory distress, depending on, you know, if both cords are paralyzed at the center, we've got a problem, right? Breathing becomes difficult. Um, And so this vocal cord dysfunction caused by this chemotherapy drug called vincristine, it can occur within, you know, the first couple of days or weeks after the dose of vincristine, it can occur after multiple doses. So we call that a cumulative dose effect. Um, A lot of times it's noticed by the nurse um, if the patient is inpatient or the caregivers, because all of a sudden they're coughing every time they're drinking out of whatever they're drinking out of, um, or they might have some hoarseness that they didn't have before. Um, And so I um, think it's really important to collaborate with others when we think that this might be an issue. So we're referring to ENT so that we can see, you know, what are the vocal cords doing? Where are they? Are one or both cords involved? Um, the SLP will evaluate swallowing um, and make any recommendations. Um, the good thing about this vocal cord paralysis is that it typically returns to baseline generally within a few weeks or months. Um, In some cases, it can be very acute and very serious and dangerous, um, but generally it does return. So um, the SLP might be providing recommendations that are a little bit more Mm short-term. And then sometimes, depending on the severity of the vocal cord dysfunction and the um, other neuropathies, the medical team might decide 
hey, we're going to uh, reduce the next dose of vincristine and see if the body can tolerate that amount a little bit better. Or in really severe cases, they might say, hey, you know, we're just going to forego vincristine altogether. That's not worth it for this patient. Um, so I think that's a really interesting side effect of well, that is super therapy. And that's what I was going to ask too, was, is it something where when the medication stops, it stops? Um, and it kind of sounds like it can be that, or even while continuing the medication, it will alleviate itself. But what an interesting side effect. Um, yeah. So interesting. Um, and I definitely think it's, it's one of those things that I constantly keep in the back of my mind. You know, if anybody says, hey, we're coughing and choking more when we're drinking, or we've got this hoarseness. My first question is, what chemotherapy are they receiving? And that's just a really important thing to know. You know, I mean, it's something that can really inform kind of the decision-making moving forward. Definitely. And I think that, you know, it goes into where I know we've talked about on other episodes of like finding out the medication that patients are on, because oftentimes the medication play a really big role in the side effects that you're seeing. Um, so that's just another example of, of where it can really impact what's going on. So kind of the last, you know, sort of reason that we may see feeding and swallowing um, problems in children with cancer is the bone marrow transplant. So uh, give me all the things with that. <laughs> bone marrow transplant, my goodness. Um, that's a, a long one um, that requires a lot of time in the hospital. Um, and it can take a long time recover, to recover from your bone marrow transplant, you know, sometimes up to a year. Um, and so some of the complications that arise from a bone marrow transplant, um, graft rejection is one of the things that we might see. Um, and so let's go back a little bit and actually talk about, you know, what is a bone marrow transplant? That might be a little bit um, easier. I'm gonna start this part over. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, I realized I was probably doing it opposite and that wasn't gonna make sense for people. Okay, um, so bone marrow transplant, um, the purpose of that is to replace the damaged or the diseased bone marrow with healthy bone marrow. Um, and it's often used to treat leukemias and other cancers. Um, it might be used to replace bone marrow after really high doses of chemotherapy um, or for immune deficiencies and other diseases. There's two main types of bone marrow transplant. Um, autologous is when the cells come from the patient. And then allogeneic is when the cells come from a donor. So that might be like a parent or a sibling, could be an unrelated donor. Highly recommend that people um, do the little cheek swab for Be The Match. You can find that on bethematch.org. Shameless plug there. It's um, super easy need, to do. It's yeah, so, it's, so, so They easy. literally mail you the kit, you do the swap, put it back in the mail. Like it's, yep. yeah. And I'm maybe <laughs> 10 years down the road, they might call you and say you're a match and you could honestly save someone's life. So yep, that's on your bucket that. list. If your bucket <laughs> list has save a life. This is one way you may be able this to do This is it. <laughs> Another way to do it is to donate blood and platelets. We always need yes. blood and platelets. <laughs> so find your local hospital or donation center and sign up. Mm -hmm. um, so bone marrow transplant is pretty similar to a blood transfusion. So cells are infused through the IV and they go into the bloodstream and then into the bone marrow. And then a term that I don't know that everyone is familiar with is engraftment. So that's the term that's used to describe um, the time when the cells divide and become healthy again, and that's usually in the two to four weeks after the transplant occurs. And so um, after engraftment, 
the recovery can actually take a really long time, um, sometimes up to a year in some patients. And there can be several complications from bone marrow transplant. Um, one of those complications is graft rejection. And so that's when the body recognizes that the donor cells are foreign and attacks them and destroys them. Um, and obviously we don't want that because we need those cells to go and repair the bone marrow. And then there's another um, complication called graft, excuse me, graft versus host disease. Um, and that's when the donor cells attack the healthy cells in the body. Um, this only occurs after allogeneic transplant and it actually occurs in up to 50% of patients after transplant. Um, and so that's when the cells that we're putting into the body are attacking the cells already in the body. Um, you can get um, rashes and um, skin redness and blisters and ulcers, and it can cause some nausea and vomiting. Um, a lot of times these kids will have loss of appetite or abdominal pain. Um, and then we'll get some of those things that we've talked about earlier, like dryness or sores in the mouth and the esophagus. And so graft versus host disease is a lot of um, the reason why we might be seeing someone who's recovering from a bone marrow transplant. Um, any other side effects um, that might be going on due to cancer that would cause eating or swallowing difficulties? Before we kind of so dive into the management side. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there's some general side effects of cancer and its treatment that I think are um, good to be aware of. Um, so cancer-related fatigue is the term that we use in the cancer world. Um, it's more than just your average being tired. Um, it's an effect of cancer treatment that causes significant, significant fatigue. And it can really affect... Um, the patient's ability to participate in therapy. Um, they talk about this a lot in the adult world. We're getting better about talking about it in the pediatric world. Um, but I mean, they're so tired that sometimes I have to modify, you know, I'm going in there and I'm ready to do whatever the plan is for the day. And I have to scale it back or step back and kind of meet them where they are just because it's exhausting to go through cancer treatment. Um, so keeping cancer-related fatigue in mind, I think is really important. Um, and kind of along that same vein, these kids are often um, hospitalized for a long time. You know, they might be in and out of the hospital for chemotherapy, or there might be some complications that require them to be in the hospital much longer. Um, and they go through deconditioning. So um, they might have trouble getting back to their baseline and their new baseline is lower than what it was before. And so we're constantly playing this game of catch up to try to perform at the same level as they were before. Um, so just general deconditioning from the cancer treatment and, and these prolonged hospitalizations is something to keep in mind. Um, muscle disuse atrophy. I mean, that's a big one, right? So we have patients who don't want to eat at all during cancer treatment. And we know that, you know, you need to use it or you start to lose it. Um, there's even patients that do eat throughout treatment, but they might not eat very much or they have periods of time where they don't eat at all. And the same thing can apply to them where we really want to keep them eating and drinking as much as they can. Um, there's, um, I loved one of the episodes on season one with the registered dietitian about feeding tubes in cancer patients. I would highly encourage people to listen to that because it does a really nice job of talking about supplemental nutrition to support these patients during cancer treatment. Um, even in like the absence of feeding and swallowing problems, you don't have to have a tube 
um, or you don't have to have a feeding or a swelling problem to need a tube when you are a cancer patient. Um, and we get into things like, you know, disrupting hunger cycle. Um, these patients are having difficulty with hunger cues or, you know, they're having trouble tolerating bolus feeds versus continuing feeds. And, you know, we're in the, between the rock and the hard place of where are the windows where we can target oral intake where they're ready for it. Um, and then some patients are just like, no, I get my food through my tube. I don't have to eat with my mouth anymore. So we have to play that game as well sometimes. Um, I think the tough thing about um, cancer patients is that they have to have their nutrition. And so if the feeding tube is the way to make sure they get that nutrition, it has to happen. And it's not an option. And sometimes it has to be in place throughout the entire um, time of treatment. So we might send these kids home on feeding tubes and that doesn't feel very good. It's not necessarily what we want to do, um, but that's when we really start to rely on the providers who are seeing the patients after cancer treatment to wean them off of those tubes because they can. A lot of times we have to get off of these medicines and feeling so yucky all of the time. Um, and then we're in a better place to kind of start those, that weaning. Definitely. I think that's why all this information is really important for, even if you're not inpatient in an oncology unit for you to know if you're outpatient home health or you know community settings where you are going to be eating these children post-discharge or if they're receiving outpatient treatment um, but still needing some treatment while they're going through it in the outpatient setting. Absolutely. And sometimes, you know, I think my role is to do right by my patients while they're on treatment and do the best I can to help them communicate and eat and drink, you know, safely and efficiently. Um, but in the back of my mind, my real goal is to get them home to all of you to yeah. finish their treatment, right? <laughs> the goal is for them to survive and to go back to doing what they were doing before with all of you. So whether you're in the schools or an outpatient clinic or a private practice or whatever the case may be, these kids can end up on your caseload. Um, and that's when I, I want them to get to you, right? Um, so yeah, no matter where you are, you might find yourself with one of these little kiddos on your schedule. And I hope you feel lucky because they're great. <laughs> um, I think the only other thing I would add is that sometimes it can be really difficult to replicate um, kind of like natural meal times. Um, so we're working in between sedation and feeling bad from chemotherapy and they're in and out of appointments all day long. And so sometimes it can be really hard to make sure that we're still focusing on those meal times and those opportunities to allow for playing with food or interacting with food or, you know, watching mom and dad eat. Some of our kids can't even stand being in the same room when food is around because the smell just makes it so tough. Um, so just replicating some of those normal routines can be really, really difficult with this population as well. Yeah, definitely makes sense. Um, so moving into some of the like management of feeding and swallowing. So uh, let's start with evaluation, then we'll kind of go through. So in terms of evaluation, what are you looking for? How do you approach those situations? I know, like you already said, sometimes it can be hard to navigate popping in between appointments and treatments. Uh, so how do you approach that? 
Yep, absolutely. So um, at my facility, we have a really good relationship with the medical team. And so they know that they can call us at any point, they can refer anybody, we're happy to see them. Um, we've done a lot of education about when it's a appropriate to send them our way. So the height of mucositis probably isn't the best time for us to get involved because there might not be a lot we can do at that point. Um, but we're happy to see these kids for, you know, those bedside swallow evaluations. And we're checking out the integrity of the mouth and what are their oral skills look like. Um, we'll try to observe them in a mealtime, um, learn about their prior and current feeding practices. Um, and then the big one is to determine the patient and the family goals. So what do they want to get out of this? What is most important to them and how can we support that? A lot of times that'll mean that we need to move towards some type of instrumental evaluation, um, whether that's a modified barium swallow study um, or fees. Um, and it, it just kind of depends on, are we dealing with a feeding issue or like a physiological swallowing issue? Um, but a lot of times we're, we're first getting in there at bedside and then kind of making decisions from there. Sometimes that means we're picking up for direct treatment and we're working on those feeding skills one-on-one. -on -one. Um, other times that means we're providing recommendations for the family to work on some of these skills and activities on their own. Because um, we, like we had talked about, you know, just because I have this 30-minute appointment at 1 p.m. on a Thursday doesn't mean that's a good time for them to be eating at that, you know, day or time. So a lot of times we're doing a ton of caregiver education and training to say when it's a good time for you, these are the types of activities that you can try. I think that's important to note, too, because it it really feeds off the importance of providing positive mealtime experiences. And if at that time the child just received treatment or they're finally resting for a little bit, or you know they're just not interested, then providing that caregiver training on that side can be just as valuable, if not more valuable, than you trying to sit and make the child participate in some hands-on treatment. Absolutely. And we never want to create the environment where, you know, I love that people think um, speech pathologists are magicians, but I never <laughs> want it to be where the kid's only eating for me, right? They know they're going to eat in my room, but they won't eat for anybody else. That's just not fruitful yeah. for the family. So I'm constantly trying to, you know, step back if I can, let caregivers take over um, and just giving them ideas or kind of problem solving through things that they're experiencing outside of the treatment room. Definitely. I definitely agree. There are many sessions where I don't put gloves or anything on and I'm just sitting back kind of coaching and facilitating because like you said, I'm like, I don't want them to eat with me. I, I want them to eat with you. I want them to eat with the family. Right. So um, yeah, it's a great point. <laughs> um, so maybe we can talk a little bit about treatment of feeding yes. and swallowing problems. Um, and so we've kind of alluded to this a couple of times, but sometimes medical management of symptoms has to come first. Um, so sometimes we have to alleviate pain or sores um, before we can really be impactful in our treatment. Um, a lot of times we're just rolling with the punches. So maybe chemotherapy has really altered taste perception and I might not be able to fix that, but I can suggest ways to make eating more appealing or more manageable. Um, a lot of times we're using compensatory strategies to um, you know, combat muscle weakness or vocal cord dysfunction. Um, and then again, a ton of caregiver training. So simulating those meal times. Um, we do a lot of work on um, how to talk about food with your child. Um, so, you know, kind of that training of 
maybe stray away from saying just take a bite and moving towards I'm, I'm cutting up this strawberry and this strawberry is juicy and sweet and those kinds of things. So let's engage in like, like you said, these positive experiences around food. Um, and, you know, we might get some of those happy accidents of, well, he popped it in his mouth. And so we're just going to roll with that. Um, lots of food play and things like that during our treatment sessions. I love that. Cause it just, I mean, it shows that even with these children that have these more complex diagnoses, we're still trying to make this positive and that it's child-led and they're motivated to do it and they're having a good time with it. And I, I find that this, so I work with like medically complex children, of course, in the homes and clinics. So I'm not in an oncology unit, but I find a lot of times it's um, just like building their trust and rapport so that when their medical status is managed, now they're already set up to want to participate more. Um, so when Absolutely. the time comes that we can work on weaning or when they medically do feel better, they're more comfortable with the foods around them. Yep. Absolutely. Completely agree. Um, and then I also just rely on the people around me. So we refer and collaborate a ton. So, you know, ENTs are our friends. We love referring to GI if we're concerned about you know, their area of expertise. Um, we work a lot with nutrition dietitians um, to make sure that we're serving the patients that need to be served because a lot of times they're so heavily involved in their um, nutritional status that they refer to us a lot. And we have a lot of conversations about, you know, who is appropriate to refer and what it could look like and how we can support their nutritional goals um, with a tube, but we're doing it by mouth. And um, we also work pretty closely sometimes with our dental team. So, you know, whether they have some structural differences or, you know, mouth care, oral care is huge in the medical population. We need to make sure that that is um, in tip top shape so that they, you know, aren't getting sick or getting these infections as well. So um, we love to refer. It's definitely not a one person show. It requires a lot of buy-in um, from different people and um, definitely, definitely the caregiver as well. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, there's, it's almost like a mix of compensatory and um, like, moving towards skill-based therapy. So like you have yes. some compensatory stuff that you have to manage while they're going through treatment, while they're having some side effects, and then you can work on the skill development, but hopefully skill development is coming after discharge, like yep. a lot more of that coaching and, um, compensatory side just to make them comfortable, um, and not yep. lose the skill, like you mentioned. <laughs> right. Right. And then there's, you know, there's kids that are totally ready to eat and drink. They don't have the taste alterations. They don't have the mucositis. It's actually a structural issue. And so that is when it becomes really, really skill-based and we're focusing on how do we lateralize this to our molars or how do we remove the bolus from the spoon with the labial weakness or the facial weakness that we have, you know, all of those kinds of things also come into play with these, with these patients. So it's a mixed bag. Yeah. Um, that definitely a mixed now. bag <laughs> it does it keeps it interesting keeps me on my toes uh makes it fun so yeah I love that well thank you so much is there anything else you want to add or share before we kind of wrap up today 
I mean, I could talk all day long about it, but I don't think <laughs> you want me to do that. So I think that probably kind of sets the stage a little bit. Um, yeah. And I'm happy to engage with people. Um, you had mentioned Instagram earlier. If they have any further questions, um, I'm working on a course for the pediatric feeding, or excuse me, pediatric SLP library. Um, so we'll get some content going there as well. Um, but just really appreciate people's interest and collaboration. Um, and I love that. Um, this is a topic that we got to talk about today. Yeah, this was wonderful. I just, I appreciate your passion and enthusiasm and it just makes, it makes learning fun. I love listening to people that like what they do because now I'm like, oh, I love this. Maybe I'll come do this. Like, this is so yeah. fun. <laughs> so on. yeah, I appreciate it. And just like you mentioned, um, for anyone listening, Kristen is wonderful. Reach out to her. She's happy to answer questions. So if you want to follow up with more, follow her on Instagram. It will be linked in the um, show notes and in the course description. Um, and yeah, I, I look forward to also watching your course in the pediatric SLP library to continue learning. Thank you so Absolutely. much. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in on today's episode. We hope you'll continue to follow us along as well as reach out and follow us on Instagram at The Feeding Pod. If you enjoyed this podcast, we hope you'll take a second to leave a review. If you wanna get Ash's CEUs for listening, plus more courses and resources, visit pediatricslplibrary.com. Wherever you are, whoever you are, we hope you have a great day.